0: Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast, I'm Kate Norris, I'm Thomas Kraft. and we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation.
1: Welcome bosses to episode 73 of the Presentation Boss Podcast, and today we have both a super exciting and a little bit of a sad episode. When we first decided that we would do speech breakdowns as part of this podcast, I remember the very first speech I added to our spreadsheet was the one that we're going to do today. The reason being, it is probably my favorite talk of all time anywhere. And I think we've wanted to do it earlier, but I was always like, no, we have to like wait until the opportune moment until we're like really good at this whole podcasting thing and we're doing it today.
0: So today we're breaking down the most watched TED talk of all time by Sir Ken Robinson. Now, this TED Talk on the TED website has more than 66 million views. And on and on the YouTube version of it, it's got 20 million views. So, just on YouTube and TED alone, over 86 million views. And chances are it exists in other places as well. Yeah. So, it's a phenomenally popular watched talk.
1: I'm sure you've maybe seen or been exposed a bit to this talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity? And like I said, we've been putting off recording this one, but... But sad news came through last month that Sir Ken Robinson passed away peacefully on the 21st of August. So he was born in 1950 all the way through to 2020. So a bit of sad news and we thought let's honour the guy by finally breaking down the most watched TED Talk ever. So let's play the talk and break it down as we always do.
2: Good morning. How are you? It's been great, hasn't it? It's been, I've been blown away by the whole thing. In fact, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there have been three themes, haven't there, running through the conference, uh, which are re- relevant to what I want to talk about. One is the extraordinary evidence of human creativity in all of the presentations that we've had and, and in all the people here. Uh, just the, ver- you know, the variety of it and the range of it. Uh, The second is that it's put us in a place where we have no idea what's going to happen uh, in terms of the future. No idea how this may play out. Uh, I have an interest in education. Uh, Actually, what I find is everybody has an interest in education. Don't you? I find this very interesting. If you're at a dinner party and you say you work in education. Actually, you're not often at dinner parties, frankly. (laughs) uh, (coughs) True thing. If you work in education, you're not asked, you know, and uh, <laughs> and you're never asked back. Curiously, that's uh, <laughs> strange to me. Uh, but if you are, and you say to somebody, uh, you know, they say, "What do you do?" and you say you work in education, you can see the blood run from their face. They think, "Oh my God, you know, why me?" It's <laughs> my one night out all week. Um, but if you ask people about their education, they pin you to the wall because it's one of those things that goes deep with people. Am I right? Like religion and money uh, and other things. So um, I have a big interest in education. and I think we all do. Uh, We have a huge vested interest in it, partly because it's education that's meant to take us into this future that we can't grasp.
0: I actually wasn't too sure where to pause this here because the introduction is really not distinct. He had a completely different approach to introducing his talk. Which oftentimes will steer people away from this approach, but it works here. And that is he came out and he acknowledged the rest of the conference and kind of just felt like he was having a bit of a chat with the audience. And then it just kind of melted into him talking about education. And there was no distinct line between acknowledging the conference, the other speakers, and here's my introduction and introducing what I'm actually going to speak about. And I don't know why I don't hate it because it works.
1: Think I know why you don't hate it. Okay. So I think we're partway through the introduction. He said there's been three standouts from the conference. I'm literally here holding up fingers and keeping oh, track. Okay. So we're on the second one. I think when you have a speaker who acknowledges what's already happened in the conference and maybe what's going to happen in the conference yet, because I don't know where he's placed in this TED event. When you have somebody who acknowledges that, They show up as a team player. They show up as somebody who's interested in the event and the people who are there. And they haven't just walked on stage to deliver their pre-prepared bit. It sort of ties the whole conference together and they look like a team Mm. player. I've probably watched this talk maybe 50 times, not relatively recently, granted. And I think it is the sign of a brilliant speaker to be able to meld that acknowledgement of what's already happened in the conference into the talk, because we, we're we talking about... He's obviously going to talk about education. And he's talking about the future that's, that we don't know. And he's melding, you know, what we've seen, this future we don't know, into education's going to take, take us there. I think it's clever. And like you say, it does melt. It does all come together. There's no clear line. But I don't think that's a bad thing because he does it so well.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not a bad thing. Um, and again, I've watched this once, I don't know, five years ago. Oh, wow. But yeah. <laughs> It's just different. Very. It's, I think it's one of those cases of know the rules before you break them. He's broken the rules, but he's done it properly.
2: Yeah. Anyway, let's... Partly because it's education that's meant to take us into this future that we can't grasp. If you think of it, children starting school this year will be retiring in 2065. Nobody has a clue, despite all the expertise that's been on parade for the past four days, what the world will look like in five years' time and yet we're meant to be educating them for it. So the unpredictability, I think, is extraordinary. And the third part of this is that we've all agreed, nonetheless, on the really um, extraordinary capacities that children have, their capacities for innovation. I mean, Serena last night was a marvel, wasn't she? Just seeing what she could do. And she's exceptional, but I think she's not, um, so to speak, exceptional in the whole of, of childhood. What you have there is a person of extraordinary dedication who found a talent. And my contention is all kids have tremendous talents, and we squander them pretty ruthlessly. Um, So I want to talk about education, and I want to talk about creativity. My contention is that creativity now is as important in education as literacy, and we should treat it with the same status. Thank you
1: Every time I listen to this talk, I'm reminded of this at the same time. And it's the amount that he says, um... He has thinking noises in his speech way more than the usual sort of TED talker would.
0: Mm, It irritates me so hard.
1: Really? Oh, yeah. I can understand why. Like, it's distinct from other talks of a TED professional nature. It's interesting to me, though, that this occurs in the most watched TED talk, that if the content is good and the delivery is engaging otherwise that a few ums, ahs, maybe even awkward pauses won't detract a huge amount unless you're specifically sort of listening for them.
0: Mm, I don't disagree, but I definitely notice it. Like, it does niggle me, but it doesn't stop me watching, doesn't stop me wanting to watch, that's for sure.
2: That that was it, by the way. Thank you very much. (laughs) So, 15 minutes left. (laughs) Well, I was born... No, the, um... I had a great story recently, uh, I love telling it, of a little girl who was uh, in a drawing lesson. She was six and she was at the back drawing and the the teacher said, this little girl hardly ever paid attention. And in this drawing lesson, she did. And uh, the teacher was fascinated, she went over to her and she said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, they will in a minute. (laughs) <laughs> okay. When
1: <laughs> I want to comment on two, maybe more things here. Um, the first is to do with his, uh, with his storytelling. So he sort of started that story with, "I heard this story recently. I love telling it. I'm going to tell you again." Then tells about the girl in the drawing class. Normally, I would say, like if I was advising Ken, I would say, lose the preface. Like just tell mm. the damn story, Ken. Like we don't yeah. need that preface. It certainly doesn't add to the talk. Mm. The other thing, and I know we're going to see this happen through the talk is the massive amount of pathos and humour that he uses. So before we had that serious moment that we should treat creativity as important as literacy and numeracy, and there was applause, very serious moment, good pertinent point, and then moments of humour afterwards, so Mm. a, a purge there, the pattern break. What I also notice is he is not afraid to laugh at himself. A lot of the times he makes a joke, and in comedy you would not do this, but he's the first one to laugh at his joke. And I think what it does is it gives permission to the audience to laugh as well. If he makes some sort of line or joke, I'm not saying that it wouldn't otherwise land, but maybe the audience wouldn't otherwise be prepared to laugh at because Ted can often be quite a serious conference. He's the first one to laugh. It gives the audience permission to laugh along with him. We can have fun in this talk. It's not going to be 18 minutes of serious, dry content.
0: Mm. Interesting. I don't love it because I would say to someone smile absolutely and let the audience know that it's okay to laugh but don't laugh at your own jokes yeah okay i think that's purely a personal preference though
2: when (laughs) when my son was four in england actually he was four everywhere to be honest i mean mean, if we're being strict about it wherever he went he was four that year but he was in the nativity play do you remember the story no it's big it's a big story Mel Gibson did the sequel, you may have seen it. <laughs> Nativity 2. But, um, James got the part of Joseph, which we were thrilled about. We consider this to be one of the lead parts. Uh, we had the place crammed full of agents and t-shirts, you know, James Robinson is Joseph, uh, we had. He didn't have to speak, but you know the bit where the three kings come in? Now uh, They come in bearing gifts and they bring gold, frankincense and mare. This really happened. We're sitting there and they, I think, just went out of sequence. Because we talked to the little boy afterwards and said, You know, are you okay with that? And they said, Yeah, why was that wrong? They just switched, I think that was it. Anyway, the three boys came in, little four year olds with tea towels on their heads, and they put these boxes down. The first boy said, I bring you gold. And the second boy said, I bring you mare. And the third boy said, Frank sent this. <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> what these things have in common is that kids will take a chance. If they don't know, they'll have a go. (laughs) Am I right? They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to be wrong. I think one of the strengths of this
1: talk is the storytelling, and the humorous storytelling at that. The clever part is it's not just stories and humor for the sake of being funny. Every time he tells a story, he does it particularly well. I think he does a really good job of including only the details that are required. So in that, we heard Mm -hmm. the three boys that walked in, three four-year-old boys, with details on their head. We could probably picture that like really amateur level um, nativity scene play without sort of seeing too much detail, right?
0: Well, in my head, I had kind of the school hall and it doesn't matter what the school hall actually looked Mm. like, but I could create the scene around all of that
1: yeah and then he pulled the message out of it told the story and then kids are not afraid to be wrong so he's telling stories with a distinct purpose to deliver a distinct message to carry the presentation forward
2: if you're not prepared to be wrong and by the time they get to be adults most kids have lost that capacity Uh, they have become frightened of being wrong and we run our companies this by the way we stigmatize mistakes And we're now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we are educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said this. He said that all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Or rather, we get educated out of it. So why is this? Uh, I lived in Stratford-on-Avon until about five years ago. In fact, we moved from Stratford to Los Angeles. So you can imagine what a seamless transition this was from (laughs) L.A. Actually, we lived in a place called Snitterfield, uh, just outside Stratford, which is where Shakespeare's father was born. Are you struck by a new thought? I was. You don't think of Shakespeare having a father, do you? Do you? Because you don't think of Shakespeare being a child, do you? Shakespeare being seven. I never thought of it. I mean, he was seven at some point. He was in somebody's English class, wasn't he? (laughs) 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 How annoying would that be? (laughs) 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 Must try harder. Being sent to bed by his dad, you know, to Shakespeare. Go to bed now, you know, to William Shakespeare, you know, and put the pencil down, you know, and stop speaking like that. You know, it's 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 confusing everybody. <laughs> anyway. Um, We moved from Stratford to Los Angeles. And I just want to say a word about the transition. Actually, my son uh, didn't want to come. I've got two kids. Uh, He's 21 now and my daughter's 16. He didn't want to come uh, to Los Angeles. He loved it. But he had a girlfriend in England. Uh, This was the love of his life, Sarah. He'd known her for a month. (laughs) Mind you, they'd had their fourth anniversary. (laughs) Because it's a long time when you're 16. Anyway, he was really upset on the plane. He said, I'll never find another girl like Sarah. And we were rather pleased about that, frankly, because <laughs> she, was... <laughs> she was. She was the main reason we were leaving the country. But, uh... but something strikes you when you move to America and when you travel around the world. Every education system on earth has the same hierarchy of subjects. Everyone, doesn't matter where you go, you think it would be otherwise, but it isn't. At the top are mathematics and languages, then the humanities and the bottom are the arts, everywhere on Earth. And in pretty much every system too, there's a hierarchy within the arts. Art and music are normally given a higher status in schools than drama and dance. There isn't an education system on the planet that teaches dance every day to children the way we teach them mathematics. Why? Why not? I think this is rather important. I think maths is very important, but so is dance. Children dance all the time, if they're allowed to, we all do. We all have bodies, don't we? Did I miss a meeting? I mean, I think... (laughs) (laughs) Truthfully, what happens is, as children grow up, we start to educate them progressively from the waist up. And then we focus on their heads, and slightly to one side. If you were to visit education as an alien and say, what's it for, public education, I think you'd have to conclude, if you look at the output, you know, who really succeeds by this? Who does everything they should? Who gets all the brownie points? You know, who are the winners? I think you'd have to conclude the whole purpose of public education throughout the world is to produce university professors. Isn't it? They're the people who come out the top. And I used to be one. So, there. You know. <laughs> and I like university professors, but, you know, we shouldn't hold them up as the, uh, the, the high-water mark of all human achievement. They're just a form of life. You know, another form of life. But they're rather curious, and I say this out of affection for them. There's something curious about professors. In my experience, not all of them, but typically, they live in their heads. They live up there and slightly to one side. They're disembodied, you know, in a kind of literal way. You know, they, they look upon their body as a form of transport for their heads. <laughs> You know, it's... Don't they? It's a way of getting their head to meetings. If you want real evidence of out-of-body experiences, by the way, get yourself along to a residential conference for senior academics and pop into the disc attack on the final night. And... There you will see it. Grown men and women writhing uncontrollably. Off the beat. Wait until it ends so they can go home and write a paper about it. <laughs> now, our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one, that the, the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid, things you liked on the ground you would never get a job doing that is that right
1: i think i can't help but notice the the pattern here of tell a story have the point at the end of it and transition into the next story which has a point come out the back of it this whole mm. presentation is made up of bits which is story message story message story message mm. And, and good fun along the way. There's very clearly ups and downs in the energy level here. Those stories are humorous. They're well told. They're clear. They're succinct. He's got the audience laughing a lot, as you can hear. Maybe have you laughing. I, I laugh a lot at it as well still. And then it becomes very serious. Like, ah, this is an important, pertinent point. You've got my attention. I'm very much engaged and listening.
0: I think the word here is contrast. And it works really well.
1: And the other thing is... I have so little to say about his voice, about his rate of delivery, about his vocal patterns. It feels right to me.
0: To me, it sounds natural.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's nothing I would give feedback on here to build on as far as like pause and pace and pattern, volume, all of that just, like you say, it's natural and I think works.
0: He said he's a university professor, and to me, he sounds like a university professor. I've had professors that sound exactly like that. Not in a bad way at all, but the ones that I actually liked were the ones who were just like, you know what, this is my experience, just going to talk about what I know, what I love. It sounds like this. Yeah, you're right.
2: Things you liked on the ground, you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music. You're not going to be a musician. Don't do art. You won't be an artist. Uh, Benign advice. Now profoundly mistaken, the whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence because the universities designed the system in their image. If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatized. And I think we can't afford to go on that way. In the next 30 years, according to UNESCO, more people worldwide will be graduating through education than since the beginning of history.
1: Another two things here that add to his credibility. The first is he tells that story that you were benign, he, he talks about you were benignly led away from things that you may have been good at because they weren't of benefit. I'm sure with a TED audience, with the technology, education and design uh, audience, that a lot of people sitting in that room probably relate quite strongly to that messaging. I know mm. like I do as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that's just very clever, speaking directly to the human experience of the audience. The other thing he said there was more people will be graduating than over all time. Like That's a nice little fact, point of data, bit of research that's just dropped in there. Like It's not, it's not overwhelming, but he's just picked that one statistic that clearly demonstrates his point mm. without being at all overwhelming with numbers and data.
2: We'll be graduating through education than since the beginning of history. More people. And it's the combination of all the things we've talked about, technology and its transformation effect on work, and demography and the huge explosion in population. Suddenly, degrees aren't worth anything. Isn't that true? When I was a student, if you had a degree, you had a job. If you didn't have a job, it's because you didn't want one. And I didn't want one, frankly. So, um, But now, Kids with degrees are often heading home uh, to carry on playing video games because you need an MA where the previous job required a BA and now you need a PhD for the other. It's a process of academic inflation and it indicates the whole structure of education is shifting beneath our feet. We need to radically rethink our view of intelligence. We know three things about intelligence. One, it's diverse. We think about the world in all the ways that we experience it. We think visually, we think in sound, we think kinesthetically, uh, we think in abstract terms, we think in movement. Secondly, intelligence is dynamic. If you look at the interactions of a human brain, as we heard yesterday from a number of presentations, intelligence is wonderfully interactive. The brain isn't divided into compartments. In fact, creativity, which I define as the process of having original ideas that have value, more often than not comes about through the interaction of different disciplinary ways of seeing things. The brain is intentionally, by the way, There's a shaft of nerves that joins the two halves of the brain called the corpus callosum. It's thicker in women. Following on from Helen yesterday, I think this is probably why women are better at multitasking. Because you are, aren't you? There's a raft of research, but I know it from my personal life. If my wife is cooking a meal at home, which is not often, (laughs) thankfully, but, you know, if she's... No, she's good at some things. But if she's cooking, you know, she's dealing with people on the phone, she's talking to the kids, she's painting the ceiling, you know, she's... doing open-heart surgery over here. If I'm cooking, the door is shut, the kids are out, the phone's on the hook, if she comes in, I get annoyed. I say, Terry, please, I'm trying to fry an egg in here, you know. (laughs) give give, Give me a break. Actually, do you know that old philosophical thing? If a tree falls in a a forest and nobody hears it, did it happen? Remember that old chestnut? I saw a great T-shirt, really, recently, which said, um, if a man speaks his mind in a forest and no woman hears him, is he still wrong? (laughs) (laughs) And the third thing about intelligence is it's distinct.
1: He made the joke there about the, about the tree falling in the forest and is a man still wrong? And I thought just humor for humor's sake. And I don't know if that was scripted into this presentation or he literally thought of it on the fly and told it because it didn't seem to carry, it doesn't seem to carry the presentation forward, but he didn't let it either way get into the momentum of the presentation. So he sort of made the joke, people were laughing and he, and then he moved on. He's like, and the third thing is while that laughter was still going. So he's kept the momentum of the presentation up by not letting that laughter die out 100%, only die out mostly.
2: And the third thing about intelligence is it's distinct. I'm doing a new book at the moment called Epiphany, which is uh, based on a series of interviews with people about how they discovered their talent. I'm fascinated by how people got to be there. Uh, It's really prompted by a conversation I had with a wonderful woman who most people have never heard of. She's called Gillian Lynn. Have you heard of her? Some have. She's a choreographer and everybody knows her work. She did Cats and Phantom of the Opera. She's wonderful. I used to be on the board of the Royal Ballet in England, as you can see. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, Jillian and I had lunch one day. I said, how did you get to be a dancer? And she said it was interesting. When she was at school, she was really hopeless. And the school in the 30s wrote to her parents and said, we think Jillian has a learning disorder. She couldn't concentrate. She was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD. Wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s, and ADHD hadn't been invented, you know, at this point, so it wasn't an available condition. You know, people people, people weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she sent, went to see this, um, this specialist. So this oak-panelled room, and, and she was there with, uh, with her mother, and she was led and sat on this uh, chair at the end, and she sat on her hands for 20 minutes while this man talked to her mother about all the problems Gillian was having at school. And at the end of it, um, because she was disturbing people, her homework was always late, and so on, little kid of eight, in the end, uh, the, uh, the doctor went and sat next to Julian and said, Julian I've listened to all these things that your mother's told me. I need to speak to her privately. So she said, he she said, wait here, we'll be back, we won't be very long. And, and, uh, and they went and left her. But as they went out of the room, he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk. And when they got out of the room, he said to her mother, just stand and watch her. And um, the minute they left the room, She said she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes, and he turned to her mother, and he said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. (laughs) Take her to a dance school. I said, what happened? Said, she did. I can't tell you how wonderful it was. We walked in this room, and it was full of people like me. People who couldn't sit still. People who had to move to think. Who had to move to think. They did ballet, they did tap, they did jazz, they did modern, they did contemporary. She was eventually auditioned for the Royal Ballet School. She became a soloist, she had a wonderful career at the Royal Ballet. She eventually graduated from the Royal Ballet School, found her own company, the Gillian Dance Company, met Andrew Lloyd Webber, she's been responsible for some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history, she's given pleasure to millions, and she's a multi-millionaire. Somebody else might have put her on medication and told her to calm down. Now, I think... What I think it comes to is this. Al Gore spoke uh, the other night about ecology and the revolution that was triggered um, by Rachel Carson. I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology. One in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we've strip mine the earth for a particular commodity. And for the future, it won't serve us we have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk who said, if, you were to, uh, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, uh, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And he's right. What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. Thank you very much.
0: all right so that's sir ken robinson with do schools kill creativity what do you think
1: oh like i said i love it and it's interesting because i think uh, i think we have to look at this presentation through the lens in which it was given we're sitting here in 2020 this was a speech given in 2006 this was a speech given like before the iphone was a thing right so I was thinking towards the end there that there was the callback to the Al Gore speech at this same conference. So this is like one of the first, I think it might have been the first big TED conference. It had Al Gore, it had...
0: Tony Robbins?
1: Yeah, it had Tony Robbins, Ken Robinson, which is now the most watched TED talk. It had some big names in it and he had that callback to Al Gore. And I think because of that, I can see that this is a speech that was given at a conference. It wasn't fully realised at this time that like the internet would be a thing that talks... TED Talks would become such a widely seen thing. And and knowing that would have changed this speech, not necessarily for the the better or for the worst, but just would have changed it knowing those things.
0: It would have been a little bit more standalone rather than relying on the callbacks like the beginning, um, where he called back to a couple of other talks yeah
1: yeah like you talked about the girl who performed the night before I think I'm not sure what actually Mm. happened with that girl and I think also we have the clarity and the hindsight of looking back on you know again we're sitting in 2020 we can see any number of talks TED talks conferences interviews you name it online and we can sort of look at the best practices the best sort of TED style talk what it can have arguably not much Not much
0: context and background, you mean?
1: Yeah, not much context and background for, like, what makes a good internet, international sort of level talk. Mm. So I think that it it raises the question in me, and I want to ask it of you, Kate. Why do you think this is the most watched TED Talk?
0: I think it's because it resonates. I think the content resonates with people really, really hard. And I saw you nodding at that bit of, like, um, you know, you'll never get a job doing that. And I think so many people relate to that because... A very small amount of people are academically gifted and everyone else knows that they have talents in other areas that are not necessarily valued as highly. So I think such a massive number of people resonate with the content of this speech. And so many people are like, yeah, I wasn't great at maths and that's actually okay. So I think that's my, that might be what it is. I could be wrong there, but I know for me, that's kind of what it is. I went into a very academic area of finance statistics, even though that wasn't my absolute talents maybe. So for me, this definitely resonated. Um, Like I said, I saw you nodding. So that's what I suspect.
1: Yeah. I think it's, shall we say like a pretty universal message or a pretty universal, Mm. I think it speaks to quite a universal human experience.
0: And we've talked about this with guests that we've had on in the past. Content is king. You can have the flashiest delivery, but if your content is not up to scratch, it won't resonate, whereas this did not have a flashy delivery, which we'll talk about in a second, but the content resonated so deeply.
1: And I think, again, we're looking back, you know, 15, 16 years on this talk That thing like about the multitasking that women are apparently better than men, like I think that's since been disproven, but that doesn't let down the talk because aside from the content, I think the other key thing that carries this talk, I mean, other than time, like it's just had longer on the internet to rack up views. We talked about it is his passion. He's interested. He loves this topic. There is passion. There is love there. And it feels like we say, it just feels like Ken got put on a stage with some beautiful content and just delivered. And of course... It's not just a dry delivery. There's the humor and the stories in there. It's a beautiful mix. It's not just ramming data.
0: It's easy and enjoyable to listen to. It's, yes. it's so easy. It's so pertinent and not at all stressful to sit there and listen to. Because You don't have to think too hard. And frankly, it's about me. And everybody's favorite topic is themselves. And <laughs> this definitely feels like it's about me. Yes. Actually, I think that's what I was trying to say in many more words earlier is like it resonates because it's about me. Yeah. That's it. I've, I've discovered it. I've cracked <laughs> the secret. That's why it's so popular.
1: Ken was talking to Kay.
0: Yeah. And everyone who listens to it. And like I said, those people who understand that message and identify with it are probably all sitting there going, it's about me. He's talking about me.
1: Or, and I think maybe is if you're thinking he's talking about me, I was steered away from my talents. You're now thinking about your kids. And it's like, oh, we have a future ahead of us where this can be changed and this guy is making sense around how that could be changed towards that creativity and other skills.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think about my daughter who honestly is not physically gifted, like she's not very good at PE. I wonder or any where she that. gets that from, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Um, She is academically gifted in the languages, the maths, that sort of thing. I mean, she's the daughter of an engineer. (laughs) So maybe I wasn't really thinking that this is her as much because she is kind of that classic academically minded kind of kid. But then I look at my son who already is just physical. And I have thought beforehand that I wonder if he's going to struggle when he gets to school because he is so physical. He is so go, go, go. And I think he's going to be that kid that can't sit still.
1: The move to think
0: type. The move to think. And this talk makes me think, that's okay. And I just need to find a better way to deal with this. So I imagine that there's a lot of parents in my position just going, hey, my kid's not broken, wrong, strange. Maybe they're just not in that small percentage of kids who are academically minded, all about the maths. Yeah. Like I said, it's all about me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Why don't we jump into some analysis, Kate? What was the one message you got from Ken Robinson's talk?
0: I think for me, it is that there is more than one area that you can be gifted in. And it's okay to focus on that area and not force yourself into areas that you're not. That's long, but I think that's definitely what I got out of it.
1: I think the title of the talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity? This presentation is obviously endeavoring to answer that question. And so I think I agree with you that one message is either for me, schools kill creativity, or I think something that's a bit more positive is Yes, there are multiple ways to be gifted.
0: Mm. So then the physical, what did we see?
1: Again, we're down the theme of like, not breaking the rules, but like normally uh, stage movement is something that is somewhat encouraged. Ken Robinson, I believe, suffered from polio as a kid, so has difficulty walking at all.
0: He has a walking stick on stage, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think he's got leg braces under his trousers as well. Yeah. Every talk you ever see him give, he walks out and he either stands in one location or he leans on a lectern. So as a result, this talk, he literally stands in one place. He does not move from his waist down at all. I don't think he even had any gestures that I noticed with his hands.
0: Not really. A couple, but not particularly. But I notice his head moves a lot more than most people. It really swings back and forth, kind of sweeps over the audience. A lot of facial expressions.
1: And really good eye contact.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how much basically his shoulders up do so much work. It's quite unique.
1: Yeah. Unconventional to not move at all. But A, he is it's a result of him just being physically limited. Mm-hmm. And B, the delivery, the content, the passion there verbally, audibly carries the presentation.
0: Content is king, like we said. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So overall, Kate, what did you think of it?
0: Yeah, I do really like it. It is a great talk. I think I watched this the last time before I had kids. So for me, this time, it, it was looking at it from a completely different perspective. And I think I enjoyed it more this time around than the first time that I saw it.
1: Yeah, this is probably my favorite talk ever, especially when we put it in the era in which it's given. There's no PowerPoint. There's no internet. He just stands and delivers some great content. There is so much to learn from watching this talk again. And of course, I, and I know a few listeners out there, are a bit sad to hear the news of his passing. But isn't it great that we still get to watch some of his talks online? And there's Mm. plenty of others out there. So I encourage you to go and have a watch of this talk. The link is down in the show notes, as always. And you can search for Ken Robinson online and find some other talks, uh, read his stuff. So rest in peace, Sir Ken Robinson. Thank you very much for listening to this speech breakdown on the Presentation Boss podcast. And we will be back in your ears next week.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you've seen a speech you'd like us to break down on the show, click us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend, or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us have a great week
1: yeah like i said this is one of if not my favorite talk ever
0: Uh, and have you watched it before